Gracious God, you come to us in disguise. You come to us in the form of a weak, poor, crucified man. You also come to us through your living word. We pray that you might be present and walk among us and open our eyes to your truth, to your mercy, and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we continue with our sermon series, Jesus Uncensored, on the topsy-turvy teachings of Jesus according to Luke. Like I've said the past few weeks, we tend to favor the Jesus we like, the nice Jesus. That is the Jesus that is compassionate, inclusive, and forgiving, which are all true. But these passages in this series show us another side to Jesus, a Jesus who can be confusing, a Jesus who can be disruptive, a Jesus who can be challenging. And today we move on to another parable, this time the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. To call this parable challenging, though, might be a bit of an understatement. Let me tell you a story about two men, Jesus says. Two men, one's rich and the other's poor. If I could get the next slide, please. There's the rich man. The rich man lives in a mansion and wears the finest designer clothes. He feasts every single day. Think of him, I think of him with this huge lobster bib on, just stuffing his face, gulping down hundred-year-old scotch right and left. And at the end of his driveway, there's this giant metal gate, and you know a little security, a little security post with the arm that goes up and down? All to keep the riffraff out. So nobody interrupts the party. On the other side of that gate, though, is the riffraff. If I could have the, oh, there you go, perfect. The poor man. A poor man named Lazarus, who as an aside is the only person who's ever actually given a name in Jesus' parables. Lazarus means God is my help which makes sense because this guy doesn't get any help from anybody but God. God's the only one left. The guy is sick, it says, covered in sores. He dives in the rich man's dumpster every day just to keep alive. And he's so weak that he can't even fight off the wild dogs that come to lick his wounds. His life is as miserable as it gets. Next slide, please. One day, it says, Lazarus's misery finally comes to an end. He dies, it says, and he's taken. He's carried away to be with Abraham. Abraham being the Old Testament founder of Israel's faith. Abraham being the paradigm of righteousness, of right living and right relationship with God. Abraham and Lazarus are right there at the head of the heavenly banquet. 
Here it's telling us that Lazarus is taken into the joyful presence of God, a state of eternal bliss, one where his life of suffering has finally come to an end. The rich man, though, he isn't quite so lucky. He dies, it says, and he's buried. And he wakes up in Hades. Hades being the Greek land of the dead, where all souls go when they die. Where he lived in the lap of luxury in life, in death he exists in a state of perpetual burning agony. And the worst part is that from Hades, he can somehow see Abraham and Lazarus hanging out and having a great time together. It's, I mean, what a way to rub it in. He calls out to Abraham, begging him to send Lazarus to dip his finger in water to cool his tongue. So here we have the guy who wouldn't be caught dead near scab-ridden Lazarus in life is suddenly willing to put the guy's finger in his mouth just to get a little relief from the heat. But there will be no relief, according to Abraham. No can do, he says. You got your good things in life. Well, Lazarus was on the receiving end of so much evil. It's his turn to rest. Besides, there's this great chasm between where you are and where we are. Nobody can get over there from here, and nobody can get over here from there. So there's this big gulf between us. No can do. I'm sorry. Lazarus, whose stomach growled every day, is now stuffed with divine delights. Well, the rich man wanted for nothing in life, who wanted for nothing in life, can't even get a cool glass of water. I mean, this is sort of meant to fulfill a prophecy that Jesus offered, which Jesus himself said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. There's no perfect, more perfect illustration in the Gospel of Luke. That's not the end of the rich man, though. There's still more. If I could get the next slide, please. Yeah. The rich man, being a rich man, of course, isn't used to taking no for an answer. You know, he's still ready to negotiate. Maybe we can talk our way around this, he says. If Lazarus can't come here, send him to my five brothers so they don't end up like me. Basically, the rich man is saying he had, basically he's saying, I had no idea how this thing worked, okay? I had no idea. And if, but if my brothers got the warning that I didn't get, Maybe they can avoid the same fate. Maybe they can get out of this. But Abraham says they've already had a warning. They have Moses and the prophets, he says. They should listen to them. And Abraham, of course, is referring to the Bible, the Old Testament, especially the laws set out by Moses and the warnings of Israel's Prophets, all throughout the Old Testament, God tells God's people to care for the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the stranger in their midst. 
Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 and 7, put this most plainly. Is this not the fast I choose, God says, to, lo to loosen the bonds of injustice, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover them and to not hide yourself from your kin? At this point, it becomes very clear why the rich man ends up in Hades. He violated each part of God's de demands. It's not what he did, though. It's what he didn't do. He did nothing to correct the injustices suffered by Lazarus. He ignored scripture's demands to use the wealth he had to relieve his suffering. He shared no bread. He shut him out of his house and he hid himself from the sufferings of this poor, wretched man whom he should have treated instead as kin, as a brother. All the while he sat holed up in his house enjoying every fine thing the world had to offer. And so now he's the one wasting away while Lazarus enjoys the high life. The impenetrable gate he set up to keep Lazarus out in life has now become an unbreachable chasm between them in death. So, this is a disturbing parable, you could say. But you've got to admit that it's pretty straightforward. A wealthy man enjoys a life of luxury while the poor man at the end of his driveway starves. Despite a whole history of prophets, a whole religious tradition that said he couldn't do that and get away with it, he did it anyway. And now he's getting his just desserts. The parable is a warning. It's a threat. Don't be like the rich man or else. Don't be like the rich man or else. Now, as much as I love to, you know, stick it to the rich as much as, as anybody, you know, my, I could feel my blood starting to get up and like, yeah, you tell them. But if we read the parable in that same straightforward way about ourselves, we'll probably have to come to the same conclusion about ourselves too. We may not be wealthy in comparison to our neighbors or citizens of other industrialized countries. But most of us certainly have far more than most people on the planet. Most of us have more than enough. From a global perspective, Canada alone wastes nearly 900 pounds of food per person per year on average, and 900 pounds times 35 million people is a lot of food considering that in our world, 800 million people a year go hungry. 
Lazarus continues to languish at our own gates in judgment. And the straightforward reading of this parable must also then be a warning to us to change our ways or else watch out. That's the straightforward reading of the parable. It's a warning. It's a threat. One thing I'm willing to bet, though, is that what I just said made very little difference to any of you, or even to me. Some of you might have silently cheered, taking it as a nod towards social justice in the next federal election. Some of you might have felt guilty, knowing that you aren't doing enough. And then some of you might be mad and say something like, well, you know, uh, this sounds like socialism to me, uh, but you know, he's a United Church minister, so that's what we really should expect a United Church minister to say. You might have had different reactions, but you all had one thing in common. None of you changed your minds about anything. Agree, disagree, we're all the same as we were at the beginning of this sermon. What's most interesting about this parable, though, I think, is how our reaction is built right into it. Remember how Abraham refuses to send Lazarus to talk some sense into the rich man's brothers? His response is that they already have Moses and the prophets. They've already been warned, but it makes no difference. And just after that, the rich man, he pushes again. Please, he says, send Lazarus. Surely if someone came from, you know, the other side to warn them, they'd change their lives. I mean, it's a perfectly reasonable suggestion, right? We've all seen Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, where the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future come to warn Ebenezer Scrooge that if he doesn't start throwing his money around a little bit more along with a little kindness, then he's headed to the same place as the rich man in the parable. But Abraham refuses even this tried and true method. If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, he says, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen to somebody who comes back from the dead. This is, of course, a winking reference to Jesus' own future resurrection, which would still leave plenty of people doubting in its wake. Abraham seems to know that threats of any kind, whether delivered through scripture or supernatural experience, have a very low rate of success in changing anyone or anything. Fear works for a little bit, but it doesn't last. Fear doesn't inspire love. For a parable that's all about hell, it seems to actually undermine the threat of hell for the purpose of human transformation. 
It doesn't mean that there isn't a truth to Hades, but it does mean that whether prophet or poltergeist or son of God, threats just don't work to create the kind of change that we in our world really need. What's needed ultimately is a change of heart, a change from the inside out. And that's what this parable is getting at. Because as I've said before, this is the purpose of Jesus' parables from the beginning, to blow things open, to change the way we see ourselves in our world, to help us repent, which means to change our minds. Next slide, please. This parable says that God himself, the creator of the universe, comes to us as Lazarus. Just as God comes to the rich man in the form of Lazarus in this parable, God comes to us in Jesus Christ who lived as Lazarus. God himself comes to us in the form of the stranger at the gate who lives in poverty, dies in weakness, and who rises into glory. Every human being bears the image of God. It's true. But this parable tells us that the one who comes to us as weak, as poor, suffering, and in need, bears the special image, the very presence of our Creator and is worthy of our love on the simple account of God's own love for the world. Nothing more, nothing less. And the promise is, if we're able to see Christ in the Lazaruses of the world, then we'll start loving them the way that he loves them too. That's the purpose of this parable. That's how God saves us. That's what will change us. Which is something even the best fire and brimstone sermon or parable could never do. To open our eyes to the presence of Christ, the hidden presence of Christ in the Lazaruses of our world. So, friends, brothers and sisters, by all means, if you wish, hear a threat, a warning in this parable, if you like. If that's the kind of thing that floats your boat and gets you motivated, why not? Don't get me wrong, the situation is dire. Wealth puts our souls in jeopardy by buffering us from the suffering of the world. It's true. But we all know that deeper truth, that no warning or threat will actually change us. The good news is that by showing himself disguised in the least, the last, and the lost in this parable, Christ breaks down the gate that divides us. In his life, death, and resurrection, he bridges the chasm between the weak and strong, in life and in death, making us all children of one divine parent. So, 
May he continue to open our eyes to his, his presence and awaken our hearts to his love. For the sake of a Lazarus world that suffers and the sake of our salvation here and now. Amen.